I'm Shelley Schlender for the KGNU Science Show, which you can find online at howonearthradio.org. This is an extended interview from the report we broadcast on August 20th, 2013, about a new study from the University of Rochester that indicates that too much of an essential nutrient, copper, might promote Alzheimer's disease. As background, Rashid Dean gave mice drinking water laced with 50 times their normal copper intake. While that sounds high, he says it was only 10% of the daily dose that the EPA considers to be within safe limits. For the mice, Rashid says this safe level of copper led to a breach in the blood-brain barrier, resulting in excess copper in the blood that feeds the mice brains. This activated mop-up proteins, such as beta amyloid and prions. Normally, these proteins clear out inflammation, but the excess copper stuck to the cleanup proteins. Altered proteins then clogged receptor channels that normally allow the beta amyloid, prion proteins, and copper all to pass down through the blood-brain barrier so that they can be recycled. Dean suggests that all this blockage may add to the buildup of beta amyloid plaque found in the brains of people who die from Alzheimer's. Dean plans more research to determine whether people with Alzheimer's have higher blood copper levels. He's also exploring other substances that prevent the brain from cleansing itself of accumulating trash. For instance, high blood sugar levels can clog the receptors that allow toxins to leave the brain and be recycled. As for copper, everyone needs and gets trace amounts from food, copper plumbing, and supplements. Given his findings, Dean suggests reducing copper supplements. We'll link to Rashid Dean's study on our website. And now we're almost to the extended version of the interview. But to help clarify a couple of technical topics that we'll mention, in his study, Dean describes how a chemical called N-acetylcysteine helps reduce the buildup of copper in the brains of the mice they studied. Interestingly, this substance is often used to clear out damage from an overdose of a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, such as Tylenol. That led to some interesting questions along the lines of Tylenol. Also, at the end of this interview, you'll hear a mention of salmon. That's because salmon is a fish that naturally develops beta amyloid plaques in its brain as part of its normal aging process. The salmon experience leads some researchers to wonder whether beta amyloids might somehow be protective, even in humans. We'll link to an interview about the salmon on howonearthradio.org. Now here's the extended interview with Rashid Dean. Your paper is intriguing. I'll bet you've gotten a lot of calls today about it. Yes, yes, I've been on the phone all day today. <laughs> well, you know, I was glad to get your actual study because after reading it, I couldn't decide whether I want to get my copper pipes checked to make sure I don't get excess copper or that I should tell all my friends to be careful about using Tylenol? I think to be careful about how much copper you're taking is probably the best advice because copper is an essential metal ion, and we do need copper to keep our body functional. But, yeah, I mean, there's many sources. I mean, uh, copper piping, and there's some leaching out of copper there. But whether that could be a major contributor, depending on our water supply, which have copper as well, and the food we eat have copper. We didn't really address copper in food because we kept that constant. But we didn't really study copper deficiencies, so we make sure they have enough copper in them so their food was okay. But we did also the water supply. And the logic there was because in food, 
to get the copper out of it so that it can get to the body, it has to be broken down. So the, the, the food we take, like the nuts we eat and the veg has to be broken down, copper has to be released, so copper can get, get into the body. And the water supply, the copper is already there and um, can, can get diffused more rapidly. Draw some that sort of logic to what we are actually studying. Of course, copper in, in water is a source of copper as well. In your study, you were using huge amounts of copper, 52 times the normal amount that uh, the mice normally drink. Yeah. Highly toxic levels of copper. That bit you got it wrong. We, we're not using high levels of copper. We're using 10% of the maximum allowed oh. in our drinking water is 10%. But you're quite right in saying that um, the normal water supply for the mice was actually have a lower level of copper than that. And it's because copper in water varies in areas to areas, up and down the country and in different countries as well. Some areas have very low levels. So now also the, the, the mice that we have here have special treatments. Their normal water is actually normally um, uh, autoclave, so it's been, it's been heated up to kill all the bacteria and so on in it. And also it's been filtered before they get it. It's more copper than the mice normally get, but it's only 10% of what the EPA considers a safe lot level of copper consumption for humans. Correct. That's the point. Yeah. That's sobering. That's very sobering. But it still doesn't cre- finish solving a puzzle because Alzheimer's disease is on the rise as are prion-related diseases. And I'm not aware of anyone saying that the amount of copper being ingested by the American public has been going up as well. Well, we, we actually don't know that because I think we are promoting good health as well by eating. We are saying, okay, have your nuts, have your vegetables, have your eat more fish or have vegetables. And all of these have high levels of copper. And as well, the public seems to be very conscious of that they must take supplements. They also, in addition, I'm sure there are people out there in addition of all of that will take their supplements as well. And supplements also gauge up with having two milligrams of copper, which is a lot. So you could potentially have individuals out there who want their eating well, as well as taking all the supplement that's been recommended uh, religiously, and maybe, just maybe, they're having too much. Perhaps they are. Maybe some people are eating too much. I don't think, I'm not aware of any studies that, in, uh, t- that compare the amount of copper consumption that somebody takes in and their risk of Alzheimer's disease, but perhaps your study will trigger that kind of investigation. That's what the study you, you described is, is excellent. The late Larry Spark did a, a survey of water supply up and down the country, and he did find a loose relationship between the level of, of, of copper in the water supply and the incidence of Alzheimer's disease in those areas. So there is some loose relationship out there between copper levels in water supply and copper le- uh, and Alzheimer's disease, but that's fairly loose. And, and so you'd like to see a more clear study of the epidemiology of copper intake versus Alzheimer's and prion-related diseases. The prion disease is a little bit more complicated, but uh, I mean, I, I definitely would, would, would like to see a more detailed study in those areas, that the, and you're quite right, it, it's the total intake we, we should look at, you know, what's in the blood levels and, and what's in the food supply. I think that makes sense to me too, but but I was also fascinated in your study by how you indicated that in the mice you could reduce the effects of the high copper levels by giving them a supplement that reduces the effects of overdose of a chemical that basically is Tylenol. Great, yeah, I think you, you made a good observation there actually because I think that's what we did that experiment for. We were trying to, to see whether we can actually find some way of actually 
prevented or delayed this process by giving them some sort of a, a treatment, which is, is an antioxidant or some sort. I couldn't help but wonder then whether or not the increase of use of Tylenol might be associated with Alzheimer's by somehow inhibiting the body's ability to clear out copper in a more efficient way by affecting the same pathways that are affected by, you know, that, that for some reason copper, from what you've, you've mentioned, is harder for the body to clear out in the face of something that's basically a Tylenol-like substance, or, or at least something that clears out a Tylenol overdose seems to help with clearing out copper as well. But the compound we use is not like Tylenol. I mean, the compound we use, is, it, it, it's, uh, the test is, is like an antioxidant. So it's not Tylenol-based. Correct. It's not Tylenol-based, but the substance that you use to clear out the blockage to copper washing out of the body shows up as a substance that's used primarily for clearing out overdoses of Tylenol. Tylenol is cleared out through the liver and everything else, and through its copper as well, uh, and, and it gets into the bile, and then it gets out of the gut uh, that way. So I think the mechanism is a little bit different than that. So those may not be related. It may be that this substance helps both poisonings, but uh, in different ways and for different reasons. For different ways, yeah, different ways, different reasons, that's for sure. In the case of the Alzheimer's disease, the amyloid is actually um, traffic across the blood vessel by a special ferry called LRP-1. Yes, I, I found myself calling that lower the inflammation receptor. <laughs> I know that's not its official name, but that's what it's doing. Let's step back for just a second and let's talk through what happens when all this system is working right so that we can, because I think some of the mechanisms you've described are very fascinating. So when things are working right, the blood-brain barrier keeps out most free radicals, including perhaps excessive copper. Is that correct? Yeah, the blood-brain barrier is there to restrict the entry of, of molecules, including toxic molecules, into the brain. And, that, and that's a key point of this paper, actually, which is different than anybody else. We argue that in a normal animal, the blood-brain barrier is intact, and therefore it will restrict the entry. So if these toxin molecules are restricted, where do they go and how do they cause their effect? And what we are showing here is that they actually accumulated in the blood vessel, but not in the rest of the brain. Yes, and that was fascinating, too, that, that what you see is that if um, the levels of these toxins increase in the blood itself, yeah. let's talk again about how it works when it's working right first. If that happens, beta amyloids and prion proteins go to the scene to help mop up the inflammatory battle. You know, they're, they're there to help mop things up. And in a, bo a body that's working right, after everything gets mopped up, then it pours it back down through the blood-brain barrier for detoxification and sending out of the body. So that's when things are working right. Does that sound, you know, that's a really quick description, but... Uh, yeah, yeah. It sounds to me like in your description of what happens when things are going wrong, first of all, too much copper passes the blood-brain barrier in the bloodstream, and then the copper binds to a prion protein yes. and messes up its shape. It, yes. it changes, the ion switches it so it, it's shaped wrong. Yeah. And so it ends up clogging up the receptors that let the toxins out of the brain. Yeah. Yeah. Since the prion is, is supposed to respond to inflammation and so is the beta amyloid, this creates a major problem. Yeah. Well, we didn't actually show whether copper can actually cause the prion to, to cause any um, conformational change. There are other studies from some time ago that show that copper binding to a prion yes. changes its shape. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't prove that, but I gathered from what you're saying that you're 
assuming that if you get copper around these prions without getting it cleared out properly, it can start to mess them up. It's not getting them up, yeah, definitely. And when they're messed up, then instead of properly binding to this lower the inflammation LP whatever protein, mm. they instead start to clog up the receptors so that those receptors can't do their job. That's right, they can't, they, 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 get, they, they get damaged. Here's all this stuff trying to happen right in the poor brain, just in the circulation, and the copper binds to the wrong thing, which sets a chain reaction up that leads to the beta amyloids and the prion proteins getting stuck on the wrong side of the blood-brain barrier. Yeah, it, it, it gets to the brain side because it can't get out. Yes, that was fascinating. And, and also, the fa- it was fascinating that you, I, I gathered from your paper that you're saying that it just takes this stuff circulating in the blood to make these things start to go wrong. Yes, I mean, there has to be more copper in the blood. Yes, there has to be copper in the blood and a, and a body that's not doing a good job keeping it from going up into the brain. And then these receptors getting clogged up or sluggish for any reason means the body's in trouble. Yes, that's right. Once a copper level goes up in blood, the receptor that actually normally clears it from, from the brain side to the blood side uh, gets screwed up and it can't work or clogged up. Clogged up, right, fine. <laughs> I think, it, yeah, it does, it does sound kind of clogged up there, the poor thing. It downregulates the receptors. Yeah, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking whether clogged up is a good word for it because clogged up means it still stays there, but what happens is it gets degraded. Clogged means that it's blocked and stays there in, in a way. So it's clogging up is right because it, it doesn't doing its job anymore for sure. But then what happens is it's damaged, and then it, when it's damaged, it's removed. And therefore, the capacity to remove the amyloid from the brain to the blood is reduced. It's like, you know, ferries taking people from one bank of the river to the next bank. If there's less ferries, less people can be taken across. The ferry is damaged, we remove it from service and to get it repaired. But in this case, we can't repair it. It gets broken to pieces. Or it could be, it's, it's like if on my street, if half the trash trucks are broken, yeah. then we have a lot more trash pile up. That's true, yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, and that's exactly what happened. The trash here is it's piled up on the brain side. You got it right. <laughs> now, are are you one of the first people to observe that if this LP1 protein is downregulated, that there's more likelihood of beta amyloid buildup? By copper, yes. But downregulation of LRP has been known for a long time with aging. I mean, I've worked on LRP uh, uh, before. It's been known that it's, it's downregulated AD as well. But the, the effect of copper on this transporter, this is the first time. And copper has been known for a long time to affect prion proteins in a bad way. That's right, since the 90s, yep. Yeah, it's been known that it binds to it and, and causes a lot of effects. It's, it's a little bit controversial whether copper is a, a key culprit for that, but it's been known for sure, yeah. Yes, and, and I, I keep wondering, is there any way that we've dumped more copper into our world that we hadn't before? Deer don't take copper supplements, and yet deer in Colorado are much more prone to having a brain-wasting disease than they used to be. Mm. There are things we don't know, but your copper, it sounds to me like the copper... Linked to the amyloid. Yeah, that's a, that's a new idea, isn't it? Well, it's not totally new, because as you raised it out just now, we knew for a long time that copper attached itself to the prion and causes conformational change and causes a lot of other things. We also knew that uh, copper binds to another big protein, which is APP, which is the amyloid precursor protein, 
which is a molecule that gets chopped up into pieces and produce the amyloid, which we see accumulated in the brain of Alzheimer's disease. So let me know. What, what, what our work has shown that um, once a couple binds to these, these molecules and causes clog up, as you, as you described, it then actually attaches itself to the LRP and causes a bigger clog up because we now we have not only the, 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 the prion binding to the copper and clogging up the system, we have the copper binding to uh, APP and clogging up the system as well. So that, that then actually uh, means that all these molecules clog up the system that actually clears the amyloid of the brain. We brought the link between the copper and the prion and, and the APP to this protein that traffic the amyloid out of the brain, LRP1. We actually brought those all together and said that this is contributing to it. We're not saying that uh, copper and the prion cause prion disease because we haven't worked on that. Uh, there are such links outside this work that said that they could alter the conformational change of prion. That's a different story. Maybe it does that as well. Maybe that's part of the feature of how they're clogging up the system, alter the conformational structure and clog it all up. Well, yes, it could be that, or it could be that the same way that copper can mess up these proteins is something to look at for other things that can mess up those proteins. That's right. So, so yeah. glycosylation, um, if there's too much sugar gumming up the proteins so that their shape gets messed up, then maybe they could end up clogging these, these receptors too. I think, I think you, you hit it on the nail there. Ken. We, we need to think more broadly about all the toxin or substances that could clog up the system, the normal physiological system that we have to handle the, 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 these toxins in the brain, like amyloid. Perhaps one of these environmental toxins, copper, uh, contributes it. And there may be a lot more out there. Because Alzheimer's is, is a multifactorial, and maybe all of these things contribute. And if you were to have many of these, maybe the effect is, is greater. I know that there has been a lot debunking the idea that diabetes can raise the rate of Alzheimer's disease, but any condition that glycosylates and sugars proteins could be causing some of them to clump onto those receptors in the wrong way too. And you're right, because in the case of uh, diabetes, there's another protein and garbage truck, if you want to call it that way, called RAGE, R-A-G-E, and, th and that also handles the traffic of ABH into the brain, which we've worked on in the past. It's very likely that, that these things all get affected and, and upregulated to transport more of, of the toxin into the brain, in this case, and may contribute to Alzheimer's disease. But you're right. I think we need to, to look more closely at all these toxins in our environment and see what are the impact on these, on these proteins that cause disease, uh, such as Alzheimer's disease. Are you going to look more closely at copper yourself, or are you going to keep looking for more things that start to mess up proteins in the brain so that they stick to these receptors at the wrong time. For the near future, a little bit more copper epidemiological work to try to nail this down a little bit more. I would like to, to, to convert this in some way to treatment, to delay the onset of the disease, because this is a horrible disease and we're going to find something. And I'm thinking, is there, is there something we can do or the public can do to actually reduce the, uh, the time of onset of this disease. And whatever that is, it, it, we should actually find it so people can start doing it because if we don't have a treatment around the corner. And if, and if we think that copper is contributing to this, maybe we should look at this more carefully because copper is, is good, too much is bad. So we need to get a, a balance. And what other things out there comes next that may interplay with this whole process? And, and you're quite right. There, there must be several other compounds doing a similar thing. And maybe we need to find what these are. And maybe the cocktail of these are even worse. But you're not inclined to include the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories in this? 
as one possibility. That's been done by others as well, the anti-inflammatory effect. But your information would make me think the other way around. I mean, non-diarrheal anti-inflammatories, we know that they mess up knees, that, you know, they make a knee feel better. Yeah. But over time, they mess up bones and knees by the long-term side effects. Yeah. I know it's a different mechanism, but that was intriguing that this drug that we know helps people feel better in the short term, but actually causes more damage to structure in the long term. Yeah. Uh, if you use something that clears out an overdose of that, I mean, that's the other thing is that if people took more of this drug to clear out that overdose, they might have less effect from the copper. That was interesting. Yeah, but, but, but this is a different chemical we try here. This is an antioxidant. Uh, but back to your, your, your question about, um, uh, yeah, about anti-inflammatory, we found that in copper, the, 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 the inflammatory response is actually increased. So it's okay once you have an inflammatory to take an anti-inflammatory, but we are going way back with trying to prevent copper, which actually caused inflammatory response, you see. So we're thinking that maybe we should actually reduce the copper levels or something like that or, not, or control it, fine-tune it, if you like, to, to a level that is causing beneficial effects. Because the current belief I have in this is that too much of it will be bad, but too little will be bad as well. So we have to get a balance. We have to know where that balance is. Right now, I don't think we have a clue yet. But we know too much is bad because of this sort of work. And other work out there as well have, have indicated this. If controlling the things that caused it initially, it's far better than actually controlling the effect of this later on downstream. So if, you, if copper is causing the inflammatory response, we can always treat the inflammatory part of it. But if the, the thing that's causing it is still there, all you can have is more and more of it. Okay, so, so you say you're suggesting that the EPA be more strict about copper levels and that people watch their vitamins more carefully and make sure that they don't take a little bit of copper here and there and have too much of it add up. If you're already having a good balanced diet, like having nuts, your vegetables, your fruit, your cereal, these all contain lots of copper in them. So maybe we already have enough. Some in the water as well, and maybe we don't need copper. Maybe we can take another supplement like fish oil instead. But if we actually religiously take good diet because we know it's good for us and we, we will do that. And then we, we think, oh, well, we must take the supplements as well because it's good for us as well. So we, we take all these tablets with, with lots of vitamins and minerals in it. And they also have more than we're already taking. I could see a stage where somebody is, is very keen in, in health issues, doing all of this because they think it's good, and then they go overboard too much. Um, but we definitely don't want to prevent people taking copper because it's important. And if you weren't eating all the nuts and the vegetables and the fruits, maybe the, the supplements are, are very good because they have about two milligrams in them, roughly speaking, of copper, which is actually uh, essential. And definitely don't do things that mess up your blood-brain barrier clearing out the copper either. No, we, we should minimize that, actually. And maybe we should take more antioxidants in, in our food to try to... To, to protect the oxidative damage that we cause to our blood-brain barrier, because that's what's contributing to it with our aging. And, and then maybe if we do that a little bit more, we may delay this whole process. The, the, the blood-brain barrier may, take, may be intact for a longer time, and as it's intact for a longer time, maybe some of these effects are, are delayed. We achieve something by delaying the onset of disease as a whole, and of which Alzheimer's is one of them. It's surely I'm targeting Alzheimer's because it's close to my heart, but I think it's, it's good for other diseases as well. And I think one day, just as we have preventive measures for cardiovascular disease, and you know, we, we always see, do this, do that, it will lower our blood pressure, uh, reduce our chance of getting a heart attack. I hope one day we can say the same thing for Alzheimer's disease, and, and hope that comes quickly. That if we do take, this, take that and do this, do that, 
you know, we can delay the onset of this disease. And maybe this is one part of it. Hey, are you of the camp that thinks that beta amyloids are always bad, or are you thinking more that uh, beta amyloids serve an important function? Yeah, I, 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 I think it's, it's, it must be serving something. I, we, we don't know precisely what, but I think too much of it is bad. I mean, uh, the amyloid there, it's, it, the positive amyloid is definitely associated with Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, but are you, are you in favor of melting the amyloids, or are you thinking they might be protective? The, the amyloid is deposited in the brain? Well, <laughs> I know. I mean, I'm thinking of the salmon. Yeah, yeah, uh, or the, or the, the salmon. Yeah, I, I, I think the, the amyloid there, too much of it is bad, basically. I mean, I, I don't think we should have a lot of amyloid in our brain. Once it's deposited in the brain as, as amyloid when we see it in Alzheimer's disease, that's not good for us. In its free form, where it actually care on the physiological condition, like uh, you and I right now, and uh, we are producing th th this protein amyloid, but we are clearing it very quickly, so it's not accumulating in our brain. There. Now, you, you ask the question, what's it, what's it doing? It must have a function. And it's true, but we actually don't know the details of what it, what it does normally. It may well have a protective effect as well. I mean, there are people who think it's deposit um, clogged, up, uh, clogged up blood vessels that are leaky. Some don't believe that's the case. Yes, yeah, some people think that it's a Band-Aid for bigger problems that would be there if it wasn't there. That's right. That's, maybe that's what it does in some places in the brain as well. But when you have too much of it, it becomes bad. Because if we have too much of this Band-Aid wrapping around the blood vessel, they can't do their job. They can't you know, expand and, and constrict normally to cause things to flow. You know, if you have a Band-Aid in one part of your skin, it might be all. But if you wrap that around you all and too much of it, maybe it's not going to be good. Uh, to have too much band-aids around and for too long. And most of all, you think that it's important to figure out what's causing the band-aid to be there in the first place, what's causing the problem that means it's accumulating. And between copper and this down-regulation of that receptor that lets toxins out, you think there's something there to figure out. That's right, yeah. Well, thank you very much. Shelley Schlender. This has been an extended interview with Rashid Dean, a University of Rochester scientist whose paper about copper and Alzheimer's disease has just been published. Find out more at howonearthradio.org.